In the first months of the Biden administration, we've seen an intentional effort by the new president to return the country's politics to some sense of normal. Today's guest is a conservative voice who yearns for substance in American politics. She's Essie Cup. this week on Story in the Public Square. Hello and welcome to Story in the Public Square, where storytelling meets public affairs. I'm Jim Lutis from the Pell Center at Salve Regina University. Joining me as he does every week is my great friend and co-host, G. Wayne Miller of the Providence Journal. Each week we talk about big issues with great guests, authors, journalists, scholars, and more to make sense of the big stories shaping public life in the United States today. This week we're joined by Essie Cup, who you know as a regular commentator on CNN and a nationally syndicated columnist for the New York Daily News. Essie, thank you so much for being with us. My pleasure, guys. Thanks for having me. So, you know, there's so much that we want to talk to you about, but let's let's start. Well, actually, what's going on? I know. Well, you know, it's a few things here and there, um, but let's start with a little bit with, with your background. How did you, what was the path you took to become a, a CNN commentator and a, and a nationally syndicated columnist? Uh, well, a circuitous one. I I didn't effort to to get to this place. I'm incredibly lucky to be here, but really, I wanted to be a writer um, since college. Working at my college newspaper, that's really what I wanted to do. Uh, television and and politics, uh, for that matter, were just not on the radar for me when I left college. I I went after and sought after writing jobs. I, I got a few, uh, and then. Uh, in the wake of 9-11, which happened the year I got to the city, uh, to New York City, I started writing more and more about politics. And I wanted to write a book, kind of kind of on a whim. And that book uh, got picked up and published by Simon & Schuster. And then I started making the, you know, the rounds to publish it. And I think, I think Morning Joe was maybe my first television appearance promoting that book. Um, and after that, it just kind of snowballed. You know, once you get on that circuit, I, I guess if you're, you know, not half bad at it, you, you get, you know, you keep getting calls to, to, to come on and talk about the next story and the next story. And so that just kind of kept, kept happening while I was pursuing writing jobs. And eventually I got my, my job at the New York Daily News more than 10 years ago now. I've had this column, which is incredible. Um, to think about. And as I pursued writing jobs, television kept sort of glomming on and, and, and I found that relationship really symbiotic and, and useful, right? To promote my writing and to, to inform my writing. And eventually it just, it just became my job, my full-time job. Um, and I've worked at, you know, uh, a number of different networks for a number of different shows, had the pleasure of doing a little bit of everything and now I'm here at, at CNN and um, covering what is, you know, as you both know, an incredible time in American politics. And it absolutely, absolutely. You've been described as a 
pragmatic conservative, or excuse me, a practical conservative. What does that mean to you? Well, I don't know, but I don't, know. <laughs> <laughs> I don't either. So help us out here. <laughs> We're called a lot of things, guys. Um, no, I, I, I'm conservative, and for me, that's a set set of values uh that doesn't change with whomever is in washington or whatever you know donald trump says it is that's fixed uh, you know i've i've long identified as a republican but i don't identify with this current republican party because i don't recognize it uh, i think the practical side um i've also you know been called a a non-crazy conservative I, you know that <laughs> i think says more about the people using those terms than it does about me but i think I think what it means is I've, I've long taken what I think is an intellectually honest approach to politics. I try to be consistent. So when Republicans are messing up, I, I say that even if, you know, I'm, I'm on their team. When Democrats are messing up, I say it because I, I think it's true, not just because they're Democrats. And in my mind, my, my beliefs feel very conservative, but I think to others, my support of gay marriage, some other issues make it seem like I'm, I, I guess, a bit more progressive. But again, I've, I haven't changed most of my views despite the Republican Party completely shifting on a, a good number of them over the, the past five years. So like a lot of Americans, we are still taking stock of what happened January 6th. Yeah the insurrection. What's your take on it? Um, well, it was really hard to watch, uh, even though, uh, of course, I did. And the video that was played at the impeachment trial was also very hard to watch because when you're watching it in real time, you don't know what's going to happen next. When you're watching it after the fact, when it's done, and you can see it encapsulated, shrunk down in its totality, I think it becomes even more unsettling and ominous. And what happened that day cloaked in conservatism and patriotism and love of country was none of those things, was the opposite of those things. It's not conservative to go and attack police officers at the US Capitol. It's not patriotic to overturn a democratic election. Um, there's no love of country when you're seeking to undermine uh, the votes of half of it and endanger lawmakers and Capitol Hill staffers and police officers in the process. So uh, really tragic, disappointing, disorienting. And I think one of the darkest days in modern history so you, you mentioned the video that was shown uh, on the first day of the impeachment trial. Uh, I saw that video, too. And, of course, we've all seen other video before, but never put together like that. And, and some people criticized even showing that. What, what was your take on that video? It, it really encapsulated in yeah. a way that certainly for me that I had not been able to see it so powerfully all put together. It, it was a film, but unbelievably powerful. What, what's your take on that? Well, it was a film in the way that it, it, documentary films are, are part journalism. And you know this like a projo, right? We, we, we in journalism try to put stories together, not just in the moment, but then contextualize them over time when we know more. 
we say that 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 journalism is you know the first draft the rough draft of of history well once we have a more complete version a more complete draft of of history we put it together in a more complete way and so i think that was what was happening there and i think that's a really important thing to do because again uh, think about watching a a true crime trial happen in in real time you get this day and then the next day and more evidence and it builds up if you shrunk that down and made it a story i think you would see the dots connected a, a bit in, in a bit more um compelling way and i think it is important to connect the dots not just between what happened on january 6th but what had happened from the election to january 6th and indeed from the past four years to january 6th there are many dots to connect and uh, i think that's what um congress was trying to do with that video it's certainly what we try to do in journalism you know, if, if, I wonder if I could connect one more dot on that yeah. because I was uh, I went back to read some of your previous columns to get ready for today, and you wrote a, a very powerful uh, column last fall about the indignities, the threats, the verbal assaults that uh, public health officials across the country, particularly female public health officials across the country, uh, have suffered in the course of the pandemic. And as I read it, I wondered to myself if that was the same mob that had stormed the Capitol. I think there are overlaps for sure between the anti-maskers, the anti-science, the science deniers, and the pro-Trump, MAGA, part QAnon, part white pride. I mean, there's a lot going on in this melange of uh, of anger and hate. And, you know, I, I haven't certainly looked back to tie any of those people who were going after female healthcare workers to the, to the, um, insurrection at the Capitol, but they are drinking from the same water in a lot of respects. You do see some overlap in these subcultures and it's incredibly important to connect those dots because if we're going to understand how to dismantle this industrial conspiracy complex that is you know undermining our trust in myriad institutions we have to know who they are we have to know where they are and what they're saying and what they're doing and what their what their motives are so representative alexandria ocasio-cortez revealed recently on social media that she is a survivor of sexual assault and that she feared for her life on January 6th. And you wrote about this in a recent column. And I'm going to read a part of that column, if I may. In the ugly, divisive, and tribal political hellscape in which we are currently living, AOC is a reviled figure on the right. Ergo, we shouldn't expect even the revelation that she'd been sexually assaulted or that she was fearing for her life on January 6th, cowering in a closet, and wondering aloud if she'll live to be a mother one day to be met with basic decency or empathy by some hardened partisans who see only enemy avatars, not actual people. Beautifully rendered in terms of the language and, and horrifying in, in what it says. So this is a damning indictment of the state of American politics. How, how did we get here? And, you know, we could probably do a whole show on that, but 
Maybe you can give yeah. sort of a brief answer. How do how do we get here? Here we are. I think a lot of things. Um, tribalism, partly our desire to dig our heels and sort of entrench in our in our camps. Um, and, and that tribalism has been fomented. Uh, I, I don't want to both sides it because I think certainly more by Trump and Republicans, but <clears throat> certainly on both sides that has happened to a degree. I also think politics has become too damn important in our daily lives. We were not meant to orient our everyday life around politics. And yet we are making decisions about where we live, where we send our kids to school, who our friends are, what we watch on television, based on what team we're on politically. And I think that is completely corrosive. There was a time when our communities, our faith, our families, our friends, our work were, was the center of our lives and not our politics. And it's just become too um, omnipresent. I also just think division um, has become too politically profitable. It is more profitable to leave problems unsolved because when you solve them, you can't run on them. You can't fundraise off of them. You can't stoke fear off of them if they're solved. So whether it's a broken immigration system uh, or gun control, name your problem. There are reasons why those systems are still broken. It's not because they're impossible to solve. It's because it is prof profitable politically to leave them broken. I think that leaves people deeply um, disillusioned with politics, angry at politics and angry at their neighbors. So I, I think those are just some of the contours, but as you say, you could, I mean, people will be writing about how we got here, I think for decades. We need to take a quick moment for station identification. This is Story in the Public Square, where storytelling meets public affairs. An audio version of this show can be heard four times every weekend on Sirius XM Satellite Radio's popular Politics of the United States. That's the POTUS channel, number 124. We produce Story in the Public Square with a great crew at Rhode Island PBS, and we're lucky to work with them. I'm Jim Lutis. On most days, you can find me running the Pell Center at Salve Regina University in beautiful Newport, Rhode Island. If you want to connect with me on Twitter, you can do so at J.M. Lutis. Joining me as he does every week in the co-host chair is my friend G. Wayne Miller, who is an award-winning journalist with the Providence Journal and the author of 19 books. You can find Wayne on Twitter, too, at G. Wayne Miller. And our guest this week is S.E. Cup, a conservative commentator you probably know from her regular appearances on CNN or from her nationally syndicated column for the New York Daily News. She's on Twitter, at S.E. Cup. That's S. E-C-U-P-P. -P. So how do we fix it? There's another yeah. big question for which there's a long answer, I'm sure. We only have 12 minutes left, Essie. <laughs> <laughs> well, I can, let me solve it in three. No. Um, <laughs> well, good for you. We've, we've asked this question of other guests, so they haven't been able to in three minutes. So go ahead. No, it is elusive. And I, again, I think there are lots of things that need to happen. I, I think 
first and foremost, we need to reject and want to reject the state of American politics today. I know many of us do. Many don't. Many want things to stay the same. Many are here for the disruption and the, the anarchy. Um, so we have to want to make that change first and foremost. Uh, we have to reject Trumpism, I, I think very clearly. I say that as a Republican and a conservative. I, I have not seen a more corrosive and sort of ominous and deleterious um, a, a political movement, you know, certainly since I've been covering politics, but, but that I can think of in, again, in modern history, in modern American politics, I think we need to reject that soundly. And then I think we need to get our priorities back in check. Like I said, politics has become too important. I think we need to sort of be in control of our own lives again. We, I think we've let politics co-opt uh, our priorities and we need to take them back. Finally, I think a, a return to, listen, I'm, I'm in national news, right? I'm on, I'm on cable news, I'm on CNN. It doesn't get more national, in fact, international than that. But I also work in local news. Um, and, uh, you know, at the New York Daily News, which is a big paper, but still a hometown paper. And I think we have lost the value of local news, which can help keep our priorities local and our communities the center of our lives instead of national news stories and national politics. And our lives are far more impacted day to day by what happens at our local school boards, what happens at our sanitation boards, what happens in our backyard not what's happening in Washington. And so I think we need to reinvest in local news, which is starving right now, and, and give the people holding our local representatives accountable more oxygen to do that, more resources to do that. I think that will help reorient uh, our priorities as well. I yeah. could not. I could not agree more. I could that, not agree more. Well, I'm sure. I mean, as you know, you write for a local paper. One I'm very familiar with. I'm from Boston. My husband's from Rhode Island. Um, you know, <laughs> I, I, I'm, I am a fan of local news, and it's so important. And I, I don't think people realize how important it is. And just give me like 30 more seconds on this riff sure. because I'm like super, super passionate about it. Local news can very quickly become national news. If you're looking at, you know, the Catholic priest story in Boston, Spotlight, if you're looking at Penn State, if you're looking at the Syrian civil war, those all started as local stories that blew up and exploded and had huge global ramifications. So it's not just that the local stories are important to us locally, but huge stories, Jeffrey Epstein, you know, was was covered brilliantly by the Miami Herald when no one else was talking about it and really broken wide open by local news. So we all have to care about investing in local news in our communities because we'll be smarter, we'll be safer, we'll be more informed, and we'll have a level of accountability that is um, diminishing. I have not ever heard it put better. Thank you. Oh, good. Well, thank you for giving me that to, to go off. <laughs> I see, you know, that, that same column that Wayne quoted from about uh, uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez struck me for its empathy 
and which is not something that we hear a lot about or we see examples of in a lot of American politics and in the coverage of American politics especially. I'm wondering what you're, if you have any thoughts about the, the role of empathy uh, in public life. Well, I'm, you know, I'm very easy to emotions and, I, you know, in covering some of the worst tragedies we've seen in 20 years, over the past 20 years, you know, I've, I've been unable to keep my emotions in check on television, right? When I, Sandy Hook, for example, broke while I was on the air, I had to sort of deliver that news. That was awful. Um, uh, you know, multiply that by, by a dozen. So I'm not good at holding my emotions in. And sometimes I'm embarrassed by that because as a journalist, I like to kind of keep things professional. But I, I think we need to start approaching issues more as humans, less as people from a political point of view, whether that's, again, gun control, abortion, immigration. Can we talk about the human aspect first, the emotional aspect first, and then kind of get to the politics and the machinations around that, I think we've forgotten how to do that. And I'm, you know, look, I'm not always great at it. Sometimes I'm not as empathetic as I need to be. And, and none of us are perfect. But I think, I think we need to start with that. And if you listened to Ocasio's, uh, Ocasio-Cortez's uh, Instagram Live, where she reveals she had been the victim of a sexual assault and had been cowering in the corner during the insurrection. If you watched that and thought, She's a liar, screw her. She's a Democrat, so who cares? We've really lost our way. Because the only, the only reaction to that is, that is awful, I feel terrible for her. And we can talk about politics later. I mean, to me, to me that, that is the only correct response to a story like that. And yet I, I was um, appalled at some of the reactions I saw, but, but perhaps not surprised. So we're taping this in mid-February as the impeachment trial of uh, Donald Trump gets underway. So we can't talk about the verdict because we haven't gotten there. But do you think impeachment, the second impeachment, was proper and, and called for? I do, uh, for a number of reasons. And I don't think, look, I, I, don't, I don't believe Donald Trump's going to get convicted. But even without a conviction, this impeachment is important. Uh, number one, for accountability. Account accountability is still an important thing. It's important to hold the president accountable, lawmakers accountable, any of his allies accountable, Congress accountable, but also accountability to the voters. Um, you know, if you were a Democrat or a Republican who did not vote for Donald Trump, you did that for a reason. And, and I think they deserve a level of accountability ability for what happened. Um, number two, this was sort of the first official accounting of what happened on January 6th, the months after the election. And to determine a consensus narrative of those events is very important, not just for the record of history, but for the way that we talk about it in the future. Uh, we need to have a common set of facts. And I think through the course of sworn testimony and witnesses and evidence and everything that comes up in, in an impeachment trial will get a lot of that narrative. And then thirdly, listen, there might be criminal suits, um, civil suits 
that come after impeachment that are based on a lot of the stuff that comes out here. So I, I think I think impeachment, while it's a political kind of performance, in this case is still incredibly important for the American people. Yeah, I wonder if we could uh, pivot a little broadly. Um, uh, we got about now we got about three and a half minutes left, but the future of the Republican Party uh, after Trump. Um, I guess the, the, a more basic question is, are we after Trump or is he going to continue to right. play a, a huge role in the in the future of the party in American politics? And where does the GOP go from here? Yeah, does does Trump continue to play a big role? That's TBD. And I think that relies a lot um, in part on whether Republicans want him to. Um, if he has no takers, you know, he'll go off into the hinterlands and he can start his own network that's all, you know, the QAnon, MAGA, white pride folks. Um, if if Republicans still want him to, then they'll continue to elevate him and make him important and make him useful for 2022, maybe 2024. You know, that's, that's really up to, to them. And so far, we have not seen a huge willingness to leave him behind. You've seen that among some, Adam Kinzinger, someone who I've, you know, I know well and have watched his career. Uh, ben Sass has you know, spoken up pretty strongly against the president, Liz Cheney, obviously. But in Toto, you've seen most Republicans really unwilling to completely sever the ties. And so GOP is thinking more about 2022 than they are 2052, you know, and the way history will look back on this or the future of the Republican Party and that project started five years ago when they decided to marry Donald Trump. They sort of decided, screw the future of the GOP, we care about this moment. And never really looked too much you know, further past their own noses and what they could get in the immediate. Uh, so folks like me thought, well, gosh, this guy's really going to do a lot of damage to the party. And therefore, we should not be so embracing of him. But we were in the minority. So here we are. Well, and you, the, go ahead, Wayne. No, I'm just talking about uh, President Trump. Do, do you think he has a political future or you speculated, you know, he could maybe do his own network or show or whatever, but politically speaking, what do you foresee, if anything, in terms of- About a of minute left here. He could run again. Currently, he is polling first among in the Republican, you know, primary, the hypothetical primary. I don't think we should underestimate how popular among Republicans he still is. So as of this second, I think he's got a political future if Republicans want it for him. What, what do you think that is the secret of why do so many Republicans continue to support him? Oh, I mean, 30 seconds. Are you serious? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so many, so many reasons. And, and we'll be, we are still trying to understand that phenomenon and how someone so sort of offensive and unlikely really came along and got and co-opted the party and attracted so many Republican voters and indeed, you know, even disaffected Democrats, um, you know, that is not something you can answer easily. Well, Essie, uh, we'd love to have you back to continue that conversation. She's Essie sure. Cup from CNN and the New York Daily News. That's all the time we have this week. If you want to know more about storing the public square, you can find us on Facebook and Twitter. 
or visit PellCenter.org where you can always catch up on previous episodes. For G. Wayne Miller, I'm Jim Lutis asking you to join us again next time for more Story in the Public Square. Mm -hmm.